Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Uh, We're in Lent, and interestingly enough, we are not going to be talking about Matthew, but the uh, Revised Common Lectionary takes us to John. So, Alan, why don't you explain a little bit about John for us and why we might be going here? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that that in year A, um, the Revised Common Lectionary um, does this. Uh, And this week we're looking at the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And this is really a unique dialogue. And and in in this dialogue, we discover that a Samaritan and a woman serves as the example of one responding to Jesus with gradually awakening faith that leads her to testify and brings others to faith in Christ. And this is going to be very significant. But the lectionary readings in year A do come mostly from John's gospel, and they're some of the fundamental narratives of John's gospel. Last week we had the interview with Nicodemus in John 3. This week we have the encounter with the woman at the well in John 4. Next week we'll have the healing of the man born blind in John 9. The next week is the raising of Lazarus in John 11. These are really very important dialogues in John's gospel. And when taken as a whole, when you think of that, the the Lenten gospel readings in year A point not to penitence, Mm -hmm. but rather the promise of life. Mm -hmm. And kind of in a real sense, they build our anticipation of the of the uh, um, celebration of Easter in a unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that before as I was processing my um, my my, uh, um, my letter that I wrote for the church, the uh, the newsletter piece, which I was really talking about this theme without processing it first. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of exciting. I'm feel that I'm I'm on top of it this year. <laughs> well, I think I, I think I've been. I think we've talked about this enough for you to know that I I tend to tend to not jump to John as frequently as as the revised common lectionary would have us to do or at least I have before the pot that was my pattern before the podcast and so I must confess this was kind of an eye-opener for mm-hmm. me because I didn't realize this was the case and so I'm kind of looking forward to preaching the gospel yeah. lessons from John this year in Lent. So tell us a little more about the gospel of John. Well you know we've noted before that in when we're in John's gospel, it seems that we're in a completely different world from that of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there are many reasons for this, but one is that in the synoptic gospels, the hope of eternal life awaits the final coming of the Son of Man. Although to be sure, they all emphasize the presence of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry. Um, but the, the hope of eternal life awaits the final coming coming of the Son of Man. In John's gospel, eternal life is possible now. And this is, as we've mentioned before, this is John's realized Mm -hmm. eschatology. There is no anticipation of things to come that serves as the foundation of hope. Rather, the Word who was God and who, who was with God and who was God in the beginning has become flesh and has made known God in such a way that those who believe may become children of God and have life, eternal life, now mm-hmm. rather than in an unspecified future. And this is a major theme in John's gospel that we're going to see reflected in our lesson for today. And that is, that's awesome. 
Um, so I'm excited to move ahead. So tell us about how today's story begins. Well, the lesson for today begins with a seemingly unremarkable statement. Jesus left Judea to return to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria mm-hmm. in John 4.4. 4. Now, we might think that was just an obvious statement in terms of geography, although that's not necessarily true. But we've encountered the important Greek verb that underlies it. Here it's edai in the imperfect tense. Mm-hmm. But um, when Jesus uses the verb die, delta, iota, epsilon, it conveys a theological necessity. Mm-hmm. Not not some sort of external necessity, but a theological necessity, a sense of oughtness that is determined by God, uh, who is the one who sent him in the fourth gospel. And so, for example, in the previous chapter in John 3, 14, uh, we find this same verb, the son of man must be lifted up. That is fascinating. And I think that's something most people would miss. I, uh, yeah. I, I, even if you read it in English, if you see the translation in English, I still don't think you would realize that way. He had to go word. through Samaria. People would just assume, well, that's the yeah. most, that's the quickest way to get I, there. I, I wouldn't have, I, and I wouldn't have made any, I wouldn't have made any assumptions about the verbs there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have realized the necessity that's. that's but this, this is the this. same verb that Jesus uses in his passion predictions mm-hmm. in the synoptic gospels, right? And there we saw a very clear uh, implication of divine necessity. Right, right. right. Yeah. So what a, what a really cool thing. And I'm, I'm trying to remember a Greek class if we talked about this. I feel like it was in there somewhere, but I, I'm not sure. Well, die is one of those irregular verbs. And most Greek classes tend to tend to tend to focus more on what's more regular and, and the irregular right. the, the irregular words, the words that don't follow the patterns tend to kind right. of fall through the cracks. Yeah, well bit. and I felt like maybe we talked about it with John, but I anyway, if we had, it didn't it didn't had I gone back and looked at this without this commentary, I think I would have missed it. Yeah. So very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So uh, again, this is, you know, his encounter. I think we have to read this as this encounter with this Samaritan woman and with the people of her village as narrated in John four is not by chance, but rather was a part of his mission. And again, this is going to have a significant bearing mm-hmm. on how we read this story. So then John continues to set the stage he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, where J- Jacob's well was located. And because he was tired from his journey, he was sitting by the well about noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus asked her to give me a drink. Mm-hmm. And so the woman's response, how is that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a, Samar- a woman of Samaria, reflects the fact that this interaction mm-hmm. would have been unthinkable in, in society of that day for more than one reason. A Jewish man did not initiate conversation with an unknown woman, and a Jewish teacher certainly did not do so in public. Right. So her question simply reflects uh, probably almost a shock, you right. know, that, right. wait, we're not supposed to be having this conversation. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and again, I'm going back to that um, necessity this the, of above that he had to come there. So right. he knew exactly what Oh, doing. I think so. I think mm-hmm. we'll see this as the dialogue unfolds. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly what he was doing, mm-hmm. right? I, I do have a question for you. That, um, to what extent would she have been physically identified as a Samaritan woman? Was it just because of where he was? I think, it was, she was? I think it was just because okay. of where, where, where okay. they were. I didn't yeah. know if there was any dress type things that would have cued him off or anything i'm not aware of anything like that i think it would have just simply been the fact that that's where they that's were where they if were. you live in samaria yeah, yeah. You're, you're a samaritan, samaritan. Right? okay makes sense yeah. makes yeah. sense especially if you're a woman in samaria i suppose right right. You- <laughs> right so now more importantly then a member of the chosen people did not engage with someone who was an outsider 
except when they did. Right, exactly. Which, of course, they did for business purposes. And, and this has Absolutely. been a tension within Judaism from the very beginning. Right, 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 right. And so thus, we have the traditional understanding of the narrative aside in John 4, 9, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And that's the way the New International Version and the majority of English translations read. And this follows the common text of the Greek New Testament. Mm-hmm. Ugar sunkrontai judaioi samaritais. Mm-hmm. Basic, literally, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But not only was that not absolutely true, right? Because mm-hmm. Jews did associate with people who were right, outsiders right. for certain reasons. Um, it was not absolutely true, but there's also an interesting textual problem here. And, and that basically what we find is that um, the Codex Vaticanus, which we've seen as one of the earliest and mm-hmm. best um, manuscripts of the Bible that we have, adds the indefinite pronoun T to this mm-hmm. statement. And T can mean something or anything. So it's ugar T synchrontai Udaioi Samaritais. And that's the basis for the translation of the new, new RSV. Jews do not share things in common with the Samaritans. That so changes it. That's very different, right? Uh-huh. Jews do not associate with Samaritans mm. is, is, is one statement. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans is something different. And, uh. and the New American Bible, which is a Catholic translation, has this. The Net Bible, which some are familiar with, has this. The, the, the Good News translation reads, Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans uh-huh. use, which reflects the possibility of a, f- a fear of becoming ritually unclean by using the same utensils mm-hmm, and dishes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in this situation, you know, Jesus is going to drink from... Um, a ladle or something that a Samaritan woman right, uses, right? Right, right. Um, and so I think this would be a more accurate statement um, given the situation, um, which may explain why recent translations like the New RSV and mm. the Catholic New American Bible have uh, adopted Interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, so uh, you know, really I think the point of this, uh, the, the, the aside is that Jews would not use the same right. drinking that, which, utensils. Which really does, I mean, in this context, makes sense. I, yeah. Y- you wouldn't use a utensil I would get draw water right. with from. Right. It doesn't. Right, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. right. And so how does Jesus respond to her? Well, it's kind of funny because with Cindy's throughout this dialogue, Jesus doesn't answer any of her questions. He doesn't answer her question here. You know, her question is, you know, how is it that you, um, a Jewish man, um, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink. Uh, He doesn't answer her question, but rather redirects her toward the point of their encounter. If you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's verse 10. And so the fact that Jesus speaks here of living water, hudor zone, is similar to his reference to being born from above, um, Genethenai Anothen, 
um, in dialogue with Nicodemus. And of course, Nicodemus mis- mistook Jesus' meaning, thinking he was talking about some kind of actual process by which a person is born a second mm-hmm. time. Right. And that leads to the translation that everybody knows about, born again. <laughs> right. And, and, but Jesus was referring to something more mysterious, being born from above by the Spirit, by God. And, and in the same way, then, the woman at the well mistakes Jesus' meaning, thinking he has access to a spring of flowing water. Mm-hmm. But as with Nicodemus, Jesus is thinking about something more than the obvious literal meaning of the phrase. So Hudor zone, living water, mm-hmm. could refer to flowing water, like that which was coming from a spring as opposed to that which was in a, kept in a, right, in a well. Right, right. You know, it's like just thinking about this whole encounter, which is very intentional by Jesus. Yes. Um, it is really interesting to think about um, how she's responding at this point. And, and um, uh, you know, she's... she's would be why she'd be confused. It would be outside. Absolutely, but but the thing about it is, she continues to engage. Yeah, him. yeah. Nicodemus was confused and bewildered, but he just kind of shut down. Right. This woman con- continues to engage him, and, right. and in that respect, she becomes more the model to follow than Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So Jesus redirects her again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Um, and so d- here Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about something other than literal water because, you know, she asks, you know, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? You know, where, where is this water? You know, and, and she, again, she's thinking about literal water. And so again, he's redirecting her towards something different. And You know, some scholars have said, well, maybe this reference to living water recalls the allusions to the Torah and Judaism, that that the Torah gives life, or perhaps it points forward to the gift of the Spirit that will produce rivers of living water flowing from the hearts of those who believe in him, as as John 7 uh, says, Uh, I think it's 739. Um, The point of the reference is that the living water Jesus offers gives eternal life to those who drink it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's unlikely that Jesus was referring also, uh, this is just an aside, it's unlikely that Jesus was referring to the waters of baptism here, although that was a common understanding in the early church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think how it had come to me at different times. I, I don't know that I ever personally no, thought it as a no. baptism. Mm-mm. I think that that was an allegorical reading. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so moving on. So at this point in the dialogue, it seems like the light is beginning to dawn for the woman at the well, and she asks for the water that Jesus offers. But she persists in thinking still that it's some kind of water that will literally satisfy her thirst. She doesn't have to come back to draw water from the well. And again, she misses the point. And this is what we need to understand is this is often the case in Jesus' dialogues in the John's Gospel. Nicodemus completely misses the point of what Jesus was trying to tell him. Um, the people, you know, at the feeding of the five thousand afterwards, when he talks about you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, even his own disciples miss the point of that, mm-hmm. and they and they stop following right, him. Right. And so, you know, uh, she still misses the point, but she takes a step. What we need to see is she takes a step beyond Nicodemus in asking Jesus for the water he was offering her. Nicodemus didn't ask for this right. new birth that, that right. Jesus was talking about. But, Nicodem- but, but the woman here asks for the water he was offering her. And by, you know, by contrast, Nicodemus only responded with confusion and bewilderment. Mm-hmm. So she can, the fact that she continues to engage with Jesus is significant, and we need to see right. that here. You know, and I'm, I'm, 
I'm thinking about Nicodemus because we do see Nicodemus show up later then in the scripture. We do. So almost like his, he still is, um, he still sees. He's still the, in the process, in of, the process. Of, of awakening faith. <laughs> yeah. I, there, thank you. That's what I needed to say. Um, this so, woman is a quicker study than he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not—it's not like we just have to, you know, toss him out. No, of no, being, no, no, no. But, but, right. I, and and interesting that Nicodemus is named, but the woman is not. Right. I think that's also right. interesting. But then again, that gives him a chance to, right. to reflect back to, to him back. later. Right. right? right. So, right. and I, th- I think that probably reflected a tradition that was that was passed on in the church that Nicodemus had played that role in Jesus' burial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay, so moving on. So then in order to redirect her again, prodding her to go beyond her assumptions and see for herself that Jesus was more than she assumed, he asked her to go get her husband and bring him back. Now, a lot of people think that because she had been married you know, many times uh, that he was trying to confront her with sin. I don't think that was the point. I think what she, he was trying to do was, was to help her to see that he was more than what she had assumed, just a Jewish man. And so he asked her husband, asked her to go get her husband and bring him back. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the fact that the woman had been married five times and was currently living with a man who was not her husband has been taken as evidence of her mm-hmm. immorality. But we really don't know that. And that's not something that's brought out in this passage. Uh, as we've mentioned before, there were some women in the Judaism of Jesus' day who were powerful enough to divorce their husbands, but that was not the case with a common person drawing her own water from a well. Mm-hmm. That was just simply not, would not happen. You know, we could ask, was she trapped in the custom of leveret marriage mm-hmm. like Tamar? Uh, we don't know. Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the situation of most women, even still in Jesus' day, was they were dependent upon a man for, for livelihood. And so, you know, was this simply a matter of necessity? Mm-hmm. Had five men uh, basically um, rejected her? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. And that's not the point. That often is thought to be the point. It is, mm-hmm. but that's not the point here. What is the point is, is that Jesus wants to show her that he has the ability to see and know all things. And once again, then that begins to dawn on, on the woman that this man is no ordinary man. She believes him to be a prophet. Mm-hmm. And so again, we see this. She takes another step. Each, each one of these interactions, you know, she takes another step towards faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as a result of this step in the gradual process of her understanding, then she asked Jesus about the question that divided the Samaritans from the Jewish people. Where was the proper place to worship God? And Jesus responds by telling her that what is important is not where to worship God, but how to mm-hmm. worship God. Uh, in part, this has to do with the fact that in John's gospel, Jesus in the, is the incarnate presence of God himself. Mm-hmm. And this is very significant, I think, for, right. for the realized eschatology of, mm-hmm. of John's gospel. Um, Jesus' presence indicates that the hour is now here. You know, mm-hmm. he says the hour is coming and is now here when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, so so Jesus' presence is what makes the difference in being able to say that the hour is now here mm-hmm. and that eschatology is now realized wow. in John's gospel. So his presence already relativizes the question of place and focuses on worship that is consistent with God's character. As he says in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Mm. And of course, in John's gospel, then, it's Jesus' presence that makes eternal life available to those who respond in faith. And again, this is true now, 
not in some remote future, right, not in the eschaton. Right, right, right. Oh. So what is, what is the main point? Well, I think one of the main points of this dialogue is that this unnamed Samaritan woman continues to engage with Jesus in a process by which her faith in him is gradually awakened. Mm -hmm. By contrast to Nicodemus, who, as a teacher of Israel, really didn't do that at all. He just kind of was, went away baffled. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't hear anything until later on in the gospel when he right. comes to help bury Jesus. Otherwise, you know, you know, in comparison with Nicodemus, who was a teacher of Israel, she, you know, is is an example, really an exemplar for the way to respond to Jesus. She continues to engage uh, and ask, um, you know, um, um, questions uh, in, in a process by which her faith is gradually awakened. Mm-hmm. Now, she she unsurprisingly, she doesn't grasp the realized eschatology that Jesus was offering. I think. A lot of people who still read the Gospel of John don't grasp that. Right. Um, and so at this point, she observes, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Again, looking forward to something right. in the future, right. right? This prompts Jesus then to make a startling statement to those of us with ears perhaps more attuned to the synoptic Gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. You know, that is probably the single most... <laughs> Um, um, unambiguous identification, self-identification of Jesus as right. um, as the Messiah, yes. and yep. more than that, as God incarnate, right? Um, yeah, in in the whole gospel tradition. Now, the majority of English versions follow some form of this translation: "I am He, the One who is speaking to you." But the Greek text reads simply, "I am the One speaking to you," which. I think it's super powerful when you think about God, I am, the Old Testament um, reflections. So when I read this in Alan's thing, I got so excited, and then he's got a whole thing here. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) and in the context of John's gospel, we really must hear a resonance with Jesus' I am statements. There are a lot of I am statements. Mm -hmm. This is another major theme in John's gospel. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. Mm -hmm. I am the bread of life. You know, there there are all these I am Mm -hmm. statements that are summed up with the statement, the Father and I are one Mm -hmm. in John 10.30. And And, you know, I think, um, although it's not necessarily um, clear in all of the I am statements, um, I think that there is this, there is this identification of, or this implication of, I am the one who embodies the father's presence Mm -hmm. in flesh. That's, that's right. That's the, that's the, that's the prelude. That's the whole point of the prelude, right? That that the word who was with God and who was God became flesh. Became flesh. Yep. Yep. And so, um, I think these, I am statements in, in John's gospel reflect that emphasis. I agree. And that's a fundamental theology for, for John. Now there are some English versions that have attempted to reflect this, including the recent common English Bible. I am with am capitalized, the one who speaks to you. And so that sort of points back to Exodus 3.14, I am mm-hmm. that I am. Mm-hmm. And the New Living Translation, I am, and they have am in small capitals, mm-hmm. like Lord right. is oftentimes right. tra- printed in, in, yeah. in English Bibles. I am the Messiah. And again, that sort of alludes to this co- uh, connection with, with Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. 
And there are some, uh, there are a few lesser known versions as well. And, and just as a side note, the American Standard Version of 1901, the New American Standard Bible, and the New King James Version all print he in italics, which is oh, a convention okay. that a lot of Bibles use, English Bibles use, to indicate that the word is added to make the translation to, make sense right, in English. Right, in English. And I can see why, I, mean, I can see why they added that. Mm-hmm. It, oh, I mean, and, and also the, the new reader who doesn't have this background might not pick up on the I am emphasis mm-hmm. of it. So but it's okay. Actually, the italics do help with that kind of realization. I mean, exactly. Yes, yeah, it is a helpful convention. It, yeah, you're yep. right. Yeah. Yep, it is a helpful convention. Um, now, so Gail O'Day, who writes the, the commentary on the Gospel of John in the New Interpreter's Bible, says it this way, Jesus thus speaks an absolute I am here with no predicate in order to identify himself as the one in whom God is known, as that was the conclusion of the prologue. You know, mm-hmm. um, um, no one has seen God at any time, but uh, the only begotten God has made him known. John yeah. one eighteen. Yeah. Yeah. So then the woman returns to town, um, and so yes, what what happens with her next? Well, she leaves her water jar and returns to the town to bear witness to Jesus. John says in John four twenty eight twenty nine. Now, again, it's doubtful that she has fully grasped the meaning of all that Jesus has said. You know, in fact, her hesitancy is reflected in the question she asks to the town people. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And this is the translation of the NRSV, and I think it's an accurate translation because the Greek text is phrased in such a way that it expects a negative answer. You may remember this from your Greek class. When there's an ooh in a question, it expects a yes. Isn't this the Messiah? That would be the way you would translate it if it had ooh. Here it has a version of may. And when it's may, may. it's, okay. he can't be the Messiah, can he? Got, got it. So got it. it expects it a negative, negative answer. Right, okay. right. So it has may here, which expects a negative answer. So this reflects kind of her hesitancy. She's, you know, she's, she's, she's on the verge of faith. She has enough faith to testify to him and to go back to these people. I mean, listen, think about this. I mean, A lot of people think that the woman came to the well at the time when she could avoid interacting with others, right, at noon. Mm -hmm. That was not a common time to draw water. Um, Whether or not that's the case, I mean, nevertheless, this woman seems to have been happy to stay to herself. Right. And she goes back and openly invites the townspeople Mm -hmm. to come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And so in this way, she demonstrates a model response of faith. Her faith is gradually awakening to the significance of Jesus and, and brings her to the point where she is willing to bear witness to others openly, regardless of any maybe inhibitions she may have had previous to her encounter with Jesus. Um, we should not miss the fact that here we have a Samaritan and a woman serving as an example for faith and serving as a witness to Jesus. This is significant in John's gospel. Oh, it definitely is, right? Um, It's huge, right? It is. There's everything wrong with this, and that's why it's... Right. That's why it's there. (laughs) And I even noticed the come and see uh, Mm -hmm. as well, which is also used in John, right? Yes. I mean, we found, we we heard that with with, with when when, uh, John's disciples, you know, uh, asked him, where are you staying? Where's, and he said, come, come and see. see. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. here it is again, 
reference to, I mean, mm-hmm. in a way, it's particularly cool when you were thinking about the first disciples, and then here is this. Well, and we're going to see a connection with that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All yeah. right, so moving on. So in the meantime, then, Jesus' disciples return, and they're confused by the situation they found because, you know, as the Samaritan woman observed, you know, Jews don't, what are, how is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan, for water? This was just something that wasn't done. They found him talking to a Samaritan and a woman, and they were just confused by this. And, and they offer him food, but he says he doesn't need any food because he tells them that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work in John 4, 34. And, and the implication in this context is by sharing eternal life, even with a Samaritan and even with a woman, he was carrying out the will of him who sent me and completing his work. So then this sets up a saying that John's gospel shares with the synoptic tradition, and you may recognize this, to the effect that the, that the harvest of God's work is already um, ripe, it's, already, it's ready to be gathered in. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jesus then says that the fields are ripe for harvesting, we might well envision him pointing to the townspeople who were coming to see Jesus for themselves. And in this respect, the mission to those outside the boundaries of Judaism then does not wait until after Jesus' death and resurrection in John's gospel. We see, we see that in some of the synoptic gospels, that a full-scale mission to those outside of Judaism wasn't right. undertaken until after right. Jesus' um, death and resurrection. Right, right. Furthermore, in John's saying of this, version of this saying, there's an implication that goes beyond this setting of of. Jesus' ministry to the mission of the later church in that Jesus tells his disciples that he's sending them to reap that for which you did not labor, but rather that for which others have labored. And I think this also reflects, again, the realized eschatology of John's gospel because the harvest um, in the gospels is typically an image that refers to mm-hmm. the last days mm-hmm. or the, or the mm-hmm. eschaton. And so the harvest is already here. Right. And, and, and there, you know, the work is the work the work of gathering in needs to begin and it, it it's right. not about it's not bounded to those who are who are part of the jewish people and and more than that there's sort of an allusion to the work that they will they will gather a harvest where they have not you right. know labored right. uh, among other people now my mind is jumping to a couple things here john's included this story um but we also know john has written quite a bit later is that significant that John writes this later? Is this that he includes it later? That could be. I mean, it could be because at the time he was writing, you know, obviously the church was engaged in the mission outside of Ju- right. well outside of the boundaries of Judaism, right. and and John's community very likely reflected that, you know, right. Um, and so, um, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think what you have in the Gospels, all of the Gospels, is sort of a combination of. Um, reflecting the tradition of Jesus, but also addressing the situation of right, the communities right. they were writing to. Well, and to. I can see the story being left out as well, potentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the synoptics left it out. Mm, yeah. I don't know. That'd be well, hard to say. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion because John's 
you know, John's gospel is so different right. from the synoptics in most cases. Right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that the synoptics left something out because it was in John and not in the synoptic Yeah, gospels. I suppose that would be a dangerous yeah. direction to go. Yeah, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't want to make yeah. that assumption. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, conclusions. So, the concluding scene then in the gospel uh, in, in John chapter 4 demonstrates the effectiveness of the woman's witness to Jesus. In verse 40, 39, John says, Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony Mm -hmm. and this word testimony here is you know is significant because her witness to jesus is described with a participle form of the greek word martyreo Mm -hmm. and martyreo is significant in john's gospel those who bear witness to those who testify to jesus that's significant in John's gospel. Those who are described as testifying to Jesus using the verb martyreo include John the Baptist, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's, that's, a, that's a significant theme. John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus. Jesus bears witness to himself. Um, the works of the Father that Jesus was doing bear witness to him. Mm-hmm. The Father bears witness to Jesus. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus, and the Spirit mm. bears witness to Jesus. And finally, the disciples, and especially in John's gospel, the beloved, beloved disciple, disciple, bears witness to Jesus. I don't think that John's gospel coincidentally placed the Samaritan woman in this comp- company of witnesses. Oh, I don't think so I either. think it's significant that John uses this verb, martyreo, for this mm-hmm. woman's testimony, because he wants to link her with this testimony to Jesus, right? right? I mean, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, um, the Father, the works that he was doing, the Spirit, and the disciples, they're all linked together in the work of of martyreo, of martyrine, of of bearing witness to Jesus. And, you know, I think we should not miss that, you know, right. I think is one of the points points of the passage is that while Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, was confused, as were Jesus' own disciples in this setting, right? They're still kind of confused right. and scratching their heads about what's going on. This Samaritan woman engages with Jesus in such a way that her faith in him awakens and leads her right. to bear witness to Jesus, to the people of her town. And the result of her bear, of her witness was that they also came to faith in Jesus. Right. And so we see we see John says they asked him to stay with him with them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a translation of the verb menno which mm-hmm. we have already seen in the previous discussions of John's right. gospel has significant implications in terms of forming a relationship with Jesus that is framed in terms of discipleship. Right. You know, John 15, you you must abide in me, right? Right. right. Uh, it's the same verb. And so as a result, they can say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world in John mm. 4, 42. And, and, you know, this is truly the Savior of the world is probably one of the most impressive declarations of faith in John's gospel. And again, it comes from Samaritans. So again, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it is significant that we have a Samaritan and a woman yeah. serving as an example of faith and serving as one of the significant witnesses to Jesus right. in John's gospel. Right. Well, thank you, Alan. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what the Reformers had to say. And I think we're going to not surprisingly discover that the Reformers were men of their time. 
uh, and we we live in a different time. So um, I'm not going to take too much of your thunder, Christy. <laughs> um, share with us what you've found. Sure. Well, I think from our last segment, you might be thinking a woman like this Samaritan woman might be a perfect example of why women are leaders in the church. Yes. Why women should be leaders in yes. the church. Women, we have bib- biblical witness that women are 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 spreading and sharing the gospel. Yes. Right. Well. So this took me to go into looking at um, really kind of the the how this this story and how this woman had been treated in um, the Ref- tradition in the Reformation, and so I actually looked pretty heavily at um, an older um, an older article by Craig Farmer, a historical art- article on church history, changing images of the Samaritan woman and early Reformed commentaries on John. Um, I also looked at Calvin and Luther a little bit, and also towards um, a very well-known Reformation historian named Mary, Mary Wiesner Hanks um, and some of, of her thoughts, and then towards um, uh, feminist theologian Rosemary Ruther. So um, some interesting things that I, I can talk about, but Obviously, uh, anytime there's a female character that has such an important role in scripture, that sh- that's going to be part of women's studies. And um, not only um, in, in the broader tradition of women's studies, but also um, the study of church, church history. And it gives us um, a great deal to think about as we read this passage with modernize, I think, and how um, different points in history, assumptions that we make are kind of led into our interpretation of it. And I think for us as Presbyterians in particular, it's a reminder of the significance of continuing to reform, continuing to understand how our place in the world and how our biases impact how we come to Scripture. Um, so anyway, <laughs> um, Although we have uh, much scholarship regarding gender studies, most of us are still a little outdated when looking at scripture. (laughs) Um, But we have an example of a story about a woman, and in it are strongly gendered identity markers. She is a Samaritan woman. Is that is even more of a problem? She is Samaritan, so she's female and Samaritan. Right. So what does it mean specifically about women? I think we've been hearing it in terms of Samaritan, but what about women? Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at um, a couple of these historians that I just identified to see what they said. And in the medieval era, some type of midrash formed around this figure. And she even gave her a name, Fotina, <laughs> and a tradition that she died an early Christian martyr. And I kept thinking about um, about the word you were t- just talking about, uh, the Greek um, martyr. Martyreo. Martyreo is, is probably being a co- right. Being have martyr having come well, from martyreo. The noun version, yeah. the noun verb, uh, the noun form of the of the word is is martyr, and it, it means witness. But in the witness. early church, church it became it, it came connected with someone who gave their exactly. life because the witnesses because were the witness. executed. Right. And but any true, any true Christian worth their weight. Um, <laughs> um, was a martyr, was a, right. was a, was a physical martyr, died right. to the faith. So she right. had been given this kind of elevated status, and she was re- regarded as a woman with a shy, quiet, typically feminine demeanor, <laughs> and as a woman truly desirous to follow Christ. Um, so kind of an interesting way place mm-hmm. that she had become in the medieval tradition, if well, you will. Well, it sounds like that, that she, they, they, they saw her as a, as a model medieval woman, Yes, I, I, I think I, I, I think so, because she would have been demure and, 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 and there was always always a belief that God could could 
reach anyone God wanted to reach. So sure. there was always this kind of, and, and we saw this particularly in a in the, in the medieval period, um, where we tended to see lots of mystics. And right. we, tended, we tended to see visionaries that are women that seem to have um, the ear of ear of God. And so, yeah. um, although although we do have to remember that Juliana of Norwich wrote under the name Julian. Right, right, but not all of them did, no, right? Know. You know, right. like right. um, Hildegard of Bingen, we right. knew that she was 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 right. a woman. So, right. but but interestingly enough, what was ultimately meant of these people is that by and large they would um, they would turn away from their their sinful mm-hmm. lives, right? Their sinful carnal lives. Well, because the place for a woman to be able to engage in God like this was in a is in a monastic order, right? Exactly. So, according to Farmer, however, Reformation-era theologians changed the personality of the woman from polite and friendly to brash, saucy, and insolent. (laughs) I guess her questions uh, to Jesus were considered to be sass. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think the question is, why would they have such a different interpretation of her personality? Um, and you know when you when you come into that, I had never have read that through the eyes of seeing, being so brash, saucy, and insolent. Yeah. But I did find a couple of pictures of her instead of that kind of engaged look and interest in Jesus to hand on her hips. Oh yeah, kind of. So even even we see it visually too. Um, are, are these more modern images? Um, I saw some of both. Yeah. Um, yeah. The treatment of the woman's personality stems from the church fathers who interpreted this passage within an allegorical framework where the woman represents the carnal world and her assumption that Jesus is just a man and that she has had so many marriages versus the world of light where the living water reveals Jesus' true self. And in the early church, they viewed viewed her as sincerely wanting to change even if she didn't fully understand. So... Um, but so this this kind of then gets manifested into this kind of medieval medieval concept of her, right? So it, I suppose in both cases there they're still viewing um, they still view her as naive, but but able to change. Right. But it's the shift um, in the 16th century to her as one who resists Jesus. Mm. Um, they are convinced that she is opposed to Jesus, mm. that she rebukes his request for water. Calvin writes, the woman jeers at Christ when she responds to his request for water. Luther describes her as obdurate. This picture of her continues in the Reformation commentaries as she hates Jesus for being Jewish. As Calvin says, she mocks Christ, claiming that he makes promises he can't keep. Most of the Reformation-era commentaries com- Commentators use this new sarcastic image of the woman at the well instead of the earlier image. That's incredible. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's obvious that they're reading that through their own lens. Right. Now, I want to say when you read this, it's not that they're focusing on her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, but they'll just use these descriptive words about mm-hmm. her. They actually spend more energy on the oh, Samaritan yes. nature yeah. rather than on her feminine nature but the assumptions that go with her mm. um this kind of way that the the woman is treated um is anyone is very who would be a woman who would be brash enough to continue to dialogue with a man i guess is considered to be um um saucy <laughs> and brash and yeah. yeah well that's how they that's how they treat her yeah now, yeah 
Um, so why? Well, instead of being unenlightened, she's actually living in the depths of sin. Mm-hmm. She speaks with Jesus as a sinner and within the context of her fallen life. Jesus would see her sins and she would feel the guilt of sin through Jesus's presence. Wow. So this is, this is really interesting. Now, I, I do want to say that both the medieval church, early church, medieval church, and this Reformation era, they see her, her transformation, if you will, as, as, as being a model, mm-hmm. right? But here, she's being saved from her carnal sins, if mm-hmm. you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I want to head back to Farmer here, um, to his commentary. The shift is made once she realizes what her sins are and she decides to, decides to follow the worship practices, actions of Samaritan tradition to atone for mm. her sins. And this opens the space for Jesus to teach that she must rely <laughs> on grace of alone. <laughs> See, yeah. the theme here is that the emphasis of the Samaritan's discovery of her sin and guilt she must know and accept her own guilt before she can truly know who wow. Christ is. Once she experiences the true Christ, then she runs to share the news. And you know, I've read this passage for years. And, you know, even, I mean, even in the evangelical circles where I originated, where they assumed that somehow this woman was sinful, that there was not this idea that somehow she, the, the point of this passage is that she has to discover her sin and guilt in order to really know who Christ is and, and then turn to him and receive forgiveness. Yeah. That was not the point. Isn't the, it, it's, it's fascinating, this, this shift and this mm. kind of individual shift towards accepting God's grace that we haven't seen before. Well, they're, they're really heavily reading in their own understanding of the role of women and their own theology of grace and salvation and all of that. You know, they're seeing, they're using this as a proof text for that. It seems like exactly. And think about this though, how much this has, this reformation, um, interpretation has made its way to the current age. Surely, You know, this is huge. Interestingly, the next question is whether she herself is an apostle. You know, I would say it's obvious. Yeah, right? Well, and in the medieval tradition, actually, most medieval writers did acknowledge that she was an apostle, yeah. which I thought was actually really sophisticated. Yes, but indeed. again, there was still in the medieval tradition this idea that, yeah, women could be. Now, the assumption, I'm sure, would have been that she turned away from all of her sins. Of course. And then, you know, became this life of chastity. And, right. and but She fit the, the mold of what a woman right. who was an apostle right. would look like in the medieval In other era. words, her gender is gone by right. that point. Exactly. Right, exactly. Right. So, but the reformers have a quite a range. So some of them identify that this is okay, um, but most of them do not. Calvin acknowledges, yes, she did spread the word, but that was limited to the town she was in. <laughs> And Wolfgang Musculus claims that a woman could not be called to ministry in the church, but was useful for that time and place. (laughs) Think they had an agenda there? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, they did. They did. They did. And I I don't think their agenda was initially keeping women down, but, but there just was a shift in the world, the shift in the, in the space and how they understood women's space role in society and what it was supposed to be. And their new role is supposed to be very specifically under men within the context of the family. Right. Um, and they, they were very clear about that. This is it. And, and the women, there were women, by the way, in this age that, that were involved in, in, in 
being as being pastors, particularly in the Anabaptist tradition. And of course, they were always put to death mm-hmm. um, when they were when they were caught doing this. It was considered very dangerous. And we did have some women that were were writing hymns and doing some things. Most of them are published under men. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few names that rise to the surface, and um, like Katarina Zell um, from Switzerland, um, but. Even then, it was always in this kind of demure language of supporting the overall context mm-hmm. of the um, perfect well, it's, family. It seems like it seems like the male, predominantly male leaders of the church, whether in the medieval era or in the Reformation era, had this kind of fear of women as women, and. In both settings, they place them in very uh, highly prescribed uh, parameters in which they could right. could could operate in order to protect themselves from the danger that they saw in women. I right. guess you know. And well, so, in the medieval age, it was you know you could you could learn and you could you could speak in the context of a of a monast- monastic order. Right. In the Reformation era, it was you could learn and you could speak in the context of a family under your husband. And right. it's, you know, I guess the question comes to my mind, why were they so afraid of women? Well, because you're going back to, to Plato, right? Yeah. You're going back to, and, and Aristotle, and going back to ideas that um, women are, 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 because of their monthly cycles, because they give birth, are more carnal than men. They're closer mm. to, they're closer to the earth. You can't control mm-hmm. their, their, their basely urges, mm. whereas men who don't have this bodies controlled in that way. They don't have any urges that they can't control. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Are closer to God and they're (laughs) whatever. And and so then they start to read and said the, said the church leaders who oftentimes had affairs with women, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and so what's so interesting about that. And then, then they start to read scripture through Mm. that lens. Mm -hmm. And that has been read into the church and into scripture for so long that it's it it really really takes someone to understand that bias coming in and I, I, it's the same problem we still have sure so the question i asked is why the misogynist tone and farmer suggests that it has more to do with election which mm. i thought was interesting um the woman did not do anything um you know it, she did not it wasn't by what she did. She was elected. She was distasteful in every way, which is what he thinks they were trying to point out, mm-hmm. but was chosen by God. Mm. And while I think that, that Craig Farmer does a good job in trying to show that even the most despised creature be, can be claimed by God is the core of the Reformation understanding, I can't help but wonder how this interpretation played into the Reformation expectation that a proper woman who was one who was married and had children. Yeah. And, you know, remember that during the, the medieval period, women could, we already talked about this, could remain chaste and serve in a nunnery. But now women had one place that they were allowed to be, and that was a, as a partner in marriage and to have children. Again, under the control of a man, it mm-hmm. seems like, and, and, and you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a Reformation scholar. I haven't studied it the way Craig Farmer has, but it seems to me it has more to do with fear than it has to do with theology. I think it has to do with fear. Um, I think it has to do with social, kind social of the norms. social norms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it well. Being a woman in marriage and having children, I think we might argue that her her role 
in that particular space increased. Her, her reputation increased. Mm-hmm. There was still, um, there was not another appropriate outlet like in the mid- Middle Ages. Um, and that's one of the big discussions in this era was, but they could at least be educated in nunneries. And, and right. now it's only in this married thing. And of course, we see the rise of witchcraft. Right. And who are the most attacked? Single women who aren't fitting in within the context of this expected. Which again leads me to think there was some, you know, they were afraid of a single woman knowing too much and not being under the control of a man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they labeled her a witch and executed her. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, while this misogynist tone interpretation might be considered a, a backwards interpretation, I think it does show an ability of women to think that they have a mind of their own and can be agents of change in their own right. And I think it's a slightly different place than the nunnery for in the Reformation era. For women in the nunnery had risen above their gender limitations, but for women who lived lives within their gender identity, i.e. as mothers, <laughs> right. um, there's now an emphasis that she can learn. And mm-hmm. that comes in with the Re- Reformation. Remember, we have with Luther this beginning of everybody needs to be able to read so we can teach the Bible to children. Right. But that's I think that's important. She can learn so that she can teach her children. Exactly. <laughs> but it's also empowering. Right? It is, certainly. Following sure. the lead of Mary Wiesner Hanks, this type of interpretation actually shows an elevation in women's abilities, albeit with a new superstition regarding women. And I think that the increased authority given um, to individuals to read and interpret the Bible empowers people, but makes them dangerous within the status quo. Oh, you mean... I could preach the gospel. I mm-hmm. do have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, the Reformation began the process of recognizing that women, gendered women, mm-hmm. could think, and therefore th- um, their thoughts led to concepts of danger. And I think it's important for, for some of our listeners to, to recognize that gendered women, what that means is a woman living as a woman and not a woman living as a nun, giving up all aspects of her feminine gender, you know, to be able to do this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the reason I went with this today is to cause us to think about how cultural assumptions impact mm, our reading exactly. of the text. In the Reformation, we see an increase in education for women, a need to, for them to be able to read in order to train children, and yet with this recognition that women can read and think, this backlash in attitudes about women came about. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's as, you know, when I th- read this, it was like, yeah, it's okay for, for a woman to read and learn and think and, and teach in the family, but anything that, that took place outside that prescribed parameter was considered dangerous. Right, exactly. And I don't think any of our reformers were particularly using this to attack women, Mm -hmm. but they bring in assumptions about women that aren't in the text. As Luther writes, quote, a woman must look to her position and calling and bring up her children in the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. In other words, they read into the text um, her tone and mood. It is no surprise that I might bring Rosemary Ruther into this discussion. Um, But as she points out that, quote, Christian symbols have been read as a system of domination on the one hand, and then how they can be read as a system of liberation Mm -hmm. on the other hand which is kind of the direction we went with our interpretation. Well, and, and that's, but that's also, you know, I mean, the whole message of the kingdom of God is about freedom. Exactly. Liberation exactly. and being, being set free. And, and, and yet, you know, when, you, when, you, when, when church leaders who are predominantly male have imposed these 
these very tight parameters on where women can be free and where they can't be free. You know, it's it's more yeah, dominating. It, it's exactly. not liberating. It's not. And while all readers find a Samaritan woman's um, transformation as part of God's ability to work through Surely. whomever God wishes, Surely. the idea that her gender prevents her from being mm. a true apostle of Christ is definitely tied to assumptions about the limitations of women. Well, like I said, and John John puts her in the same category with John the Baptist, with exactly. God the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and with the other disciples. Which is incredible. <laughs> and unfortunately, this age-old assumption about women, this a way of interpreting the Bible continues to plague mm-hmm. the church today. And honestly, I think it puts a major roadblock into living into God's kingdom. Yep. Um, systemic oppression has never been the mark of the true church. No. And this is particularly poignant still today as we are watching the Southern Baptist Convention reject churches run by women, the continued position of the Roman Catholic Church, and the many evangelical churches who are challenging a woman's personhood. Well, and I think about the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church in mm-hmm. this area because it's fairly prominent here, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, they don't have any leadership yeah. roles for women. Nope. And so Reuters suggests that if we consider the liberating tone of Scripture instead of a dominating tone, that we find a different role for women. And I think our passage fits into this model. Definitely. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back. And of course, this topic today is is always on my mind as a female pastor and recognizing, well, even being told sometimes that I have no business being in a pulpit, um, and yeah, which happens actually from time to time, especially, you know, not in obviously- Presbyterian churches. Not in my own denomination, no, oh. so much. But, but when I run into folks that are oh, outside yes. or yes. they're confused by having female pastors, and it's very much, it's very much out there still that- um, um, this kind of old-fashioned approach to Scripture that's coming out of the Reformation and then prior to that really coming out of attitudes of women that are established by Aristotle. And I, I think that's really a tragedy um, in the church, and yet trying to change that mm-hmm. I think is I, I think is one of our most important things we can do. Yeah. And so, you know, Alan had this experience in his background, so I'm going to let you uh, tell us about your experience. Yeah, well, some of you know that um, I um, started my ministry in the Southern Baptist world. Um, I uh, grew up in a little town in Texas, and we had the Catholic Church, and we had the Methodist Church, and we had the Baptist Church. And the Methodist Church didn't have a whole lot going on for young people, and so I drifted over to the Baptist Church and felt called to ministry and did, did all of my theological education. I went to a Baptist college, went to a Southern Baptist seminary in Fort Worth, and taught at the seminary in Fort Worth, Southwestern Baptist Seminary. Um, in 1998... Um, the Southern Baptist Convention added an article to their statement of faith that we were required to sign and, and give our assent to um, that basically... I'm bothered by that at the very beginning. Well, uh, now, so let me back up with that because the, the Baptist faith and message um, was a statement of faith that we were, we were required to, to, to sign, but it had a prelude that is very much like the preface to our Presbyterian Book of Confessions, which basically talked about how this is one confession of faith, this is a human confession of faith, everyone has a right to make their own confession of faith, right? Got and a lot, of the, a lot of my colleagues would say, you know, 
the only the only confession I really want to sign is the Bible. You give me the Bible mm. and I'll sign it. But you know that was that was that that was that context and that sort of biblicism mm-hmm. of that context. So I was okay with it initially, but basically they started to tighten the screws and they added this this statement about the family that was very hierarchical. You know, the husband was the head of the household. The woman was to stay home and raise the next generation. And I could not endorse that. You know, I taught Ephesians from the perspective of um, a, a mutuality. You know, even even the passage about Paul talking about, you know, let wives submit to their husbands mm-hmm. as unto the Lord. You know, you know, I was the one who said, yeah, we got to go back to the previous verse, um, mm-hmm. Ephesians five twenty one. So everyone submit to each other out of respect for mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I I taught it from the perspective of a mutuality, a mutual submission, if you will. You mm-hmm. know, within within a context of love. Well, all of a sudden, you know, they passed this, this, uh, or they they added this new article to the to the confession, and everything that I was teaching about, you know, what I thought the New Testament was talking about, marriage and male female relationships was going to be out of sync with this, and this was kind of the last straw mm-hmm. for me, and I I resigned my my position there, and that was a big deal because. Um, a position at that seminary was was even though I didn't I hadn't taught there long enough to have tenure. It was just pretty much considered to be a lifetime appointment. Once you got on that staff, you were there for life, right? And right. you were going to be there for life. And that was my dream. I thought that I was going to teach there mm-hmm. my life for my whole life. Um, so um, part of part of my story is that um, the you know it started getting out, and other people were talking about me and talking about why I resigned. And so, because they were putting words in my mouth, I put a, I made a statement to the local, the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and um, basically told them, you know, this was a this was a decision of conscience. I could not, in good conscience, continue to teach there. And you know, one of the things I did was I had the kind of relationship with my students that I I like to dialogue with them about issues like this, and. Um, I I taught a New Testament class, New Testament introduction class. It was a pretty large class. We had about 70 students in in my class alone, you know. Uh, And um, I wanted to hear what some of the women in the class thought about it. Because we had women, we had a lot of women in our school at that time. Um, Most of them were in the the religious education school, but we had women in the theology school in that time. And... um, um, I asked them what they thought about, you know, my, you know, my resigning over this. And only one of about 10 or 12 women in the class said, well, I appreciate your stand. You know, even Mm -hmm. though I understand that you have a family support, I appreciate your stand. The rest of them just said, well, it just seems to me like, you know, that hierarchical view was, was what the Bible was teaching. And I might point out they're no longer in it. In the school because no, they aren't that's right. allowed to be in the school. In anymore. the early two, this was in 1998. In the early 2000s, the leadership changed, right. and they they changed the policy that women could no longer enroll in the MDF program in the right. school of theology. So, Which is, I mean, yeah. you know, and and I'm seeing this around when we start to take away rights of people. I think we're doing exactly that. I mentioned this in my part, exactly the opposite no, of what we're absolutely. supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Um, there's just no, and, and this, it has repercussions throughout the world. And I, I feel like. Well, even the, today, like, as you said, here in, in 2023, you run into people who, who are stumped by the fact that you're a woman and a pastor. Absolutely. And they, and, and 
then, but then I ask these bigger questions of the, some of the biggest problems in the world, you know, is we're, if, if we can't champion for the equality of, of women in education and the, in the church, in the church (laughs) in particular, um, this has repercussions throughout the world, right? When the Roman Catholic church refuses to recognize, um, the equality of women, they're sending a message that women aren't the same. Women aren't they as are. equal. And you know what? Then we look at places like Afghanistan mm-hmm. where women can't even, even women, single women can't even provide for their families because they aren't even allowed to work and right. they're no longer allowed to learn. Um, and we could just see this over and over and over and over. Or, sure. or women stuck in, uh, in marriages that they don't think they can get out of. Right. And uh, Well, they can't get out of now probably in Afghanistan. Oh, not there. Yeah. I, I mean, but we look at we just don't, we we look at um, we look at moving backwards instead mm-hmm. of really yeah, fulfilling um, who God has created us to be. I think so. And um, I just uh, to me, it's one of the bigger problems, and and it's it's hard to say. Oh well, our 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 little um, feminist group of <laughs> is taking on a, a really big swath of Christianity, but we have to. Yeah, we really have to. Yeah, we do, and I, I don't think it's a feminist group. I think it's a. It's. I think this is biblical, and I think it's. I think it's consistent with Jesus and the kingdom of God. I agree. I mean, well, I agree. Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, I was teaching at this seminary in the nineties, and um, um, ironically, things were a little more open in the nineties in mm-hmm. the Southern Baptist world. But at the same time, uh, you know, I regularly got some a sort of a good-natured question because uh, I used to teach my students back in the day. The big question was biblical authority, and the the word that the Southern Baptists were were hung up on was inerrancy. Right. I not only taught people that I told people that I didn't believe inerrancy. I told them why I didn't believe it and all the reasons why right. they shouldn't believe it. Right. Um, I I address the issue of women in ministry as why well. Inerrancy doesn't even. It doesn't even make any sense. No, it, it really doesn't. is just absurd, it and I is. hear that all the time. It and is. it's like, do you understand what you're saying? Because it, I, you have to be com- completely. Well, the, the rationale clueless. is is if the Bible is not true in in when it reports the number of chariots in a battle that happened thousands of years ago, then John three sixteen is not true. You know, God's love for the world is not true. That's that's just makes no sense. It's absurd. And it's it, an all or nothing kind of thing. Uh, it, yeah. It, and, but and, the same thing applies to the women idea. I mean, they, it's a similar kind of reading of the Bible. And so I used to I used to address this, and people would say, "Well, what are you going to what are you going to do after you leave here?" <laughs> Because they could see that, you know, I was way out of step with with what was going on. Mm-hmm. I used to teach about women in ministry in the New Testament, and um, you know, I would take up the Timothy passage, First Timothy, um, and you know, um, you could, you know, I think there are a lot of people who who fault Paul for the things he says. You know, he says basically. Um, that women should dress themselves in moderate clothing with reverence and self-control. You know, you have this whole right. idea right, of the right. demure woman, you know. Um, um, they should clothe themselves with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let women learn in silence with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, there's several things here that I would point out. First of all, the Hebrew Bible points out that 
Adam was right there with you. I was going to say, Adam was, <laughs> Adam's kind of guilty too. And secondly, secondly, Paul devotes a whole chapter to what Adam did, right, in Romans chapter 5. Right. So, so, so you have to take that in consideration. But, you know, here's, here's, here's the point that I used to make. Paul was a man of his time as well. Yep. And, and people who fault Paul for not overthrowing, trying to overthrow slavery. I mean, slave revolts were doomed to end in violent failure. And I think Paul understood that. And so I think Paul understood that, that he, he was trying, and he was trying to lay the foundations for freedom, the freedom that he knew was in Christ. So, for example, in the letter to the Philemon, I think the sole reason why the letter to Philemon is in the New Testament is because Paul tells Philemon to treat his slave, Onesimus, like a brother yep. in Christ. Right. Which right. was laying the foundation for the overturning of slavery. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, Paul says here, you know, Paul lived in a world where women were under the authority of men. I mean, that was just that was just the way it worked. We we know there were some women in the right. New Testament right. who 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 served right. with Paul. Right. But by and large, women were under the authority of men. Right. And yet in his in his household codes. Right. Paul introduces a reciprocity absolutely that was not, it's not in yeah. the typical household, the household codes code. of the day. There's, there's much more. Um, there, women are treated much better in Paul's household yes. codes than yes. the other ones, and I've done more, some work on that too. So, mm-hmm. so he says women submit to your husbands, but then he says husbands, husbands. love your wives, exactly. right? So there's some responsibility. Slaves obey both your ways. masters. Mm-hmm. Masters treat your slaves with respect right. so it goes right yeah and it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a two-way street and that in and of itself was radical for paul's oh, absolutely day. absolutely but, and so the what i see here is he does say let women learn and i used to ask this question back in the 90s what happens when women learn well, they're, then they're able to teach. They'll, they're able to teach, right? If you, right. That's part of the whole process, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and of course, unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, their teaching has been in a, a very narrowly prescribed boundary, you know, whether it's within a monastic right. monastic setting or whether it's within the family. And, you know, that's not consistent, I think, with the freedom we have in Christ. And I think if Paul were here today, he would say, let the let a woman preach. Well, exactly. And, and I think we have... <laughs> Even even in the time that scripture's written, we have examples like the scripture we read today of a woman acting in a role as an apostle. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, the women who go and tell and, and tell the risen Christ. Again, we you know, we have um um we have uh, uh Phoebe. 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 Um Phoebe Diac- yep, who's who's listed as a deacon in the of a church of, of the church, church in Sankria. Exactly. She has a ministry you know? role in a specific church. And then we yeah. also have reference to women in, 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 in some of the other letters right. in Corinthians, right. right? Where we're talking about these women that are, that are obviously Priscilla. leadership positions. Yeah. So, huh? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and, and so, so for me, the way I have approached this Timothy passage is, you know, at the time that Timothy was written and in the churches that Timothy was written to, there were a lot of um, other teachings, they're called false teachers, other teachings that were going around. And I think the problem was that women were generally not educated in that era. That was not the typical thing in the Greco-Roman world, um, nor in the Jewish world. And so, you know, um, I think 
Paul was was acting out of a concern for the church because he thought that you know someone who might be susceptible to these other ideas that were undermining the gospel, you know, to, to put that person in a teaching position would be would would not be a wise thing to do. I would mm-hmm. say that's still true today. Whether you're a man or a woman or however you identify gender wise, anybody who's not well trained right. enough to be able to to teach. Uh, from a perspective that is that is has has a solid foundation, that's not a wise thing. So, I, I, yeah. in my opinion, that's that's what's going on in First Timothy. Well, that's how I've always understood it yeah. as well. Yeah, and um, it, it, but he says, "Let the women learn." Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think. Really, this comes down to another thing of just simply desiring to oppress. I find it as mm-hmm. I find it as sinful as as wealth controlling you control this is a power issue and i think it comes down to power now i can give some other historical reasons why maybe women ended up in this and it really i do think it's tied to the fact that women could not control any have any kind of birth control they had Mm -hmm. no and we had um having children was dangerous many women died in childbirth um and so you end up with a situation of becoming under men because of that, mm-hmm. if you know, reproductive function. But I don't think you limit women by reproductive function. We don't limit men by reproductive right. function. Right. So, um, well, in in my mind, uh, as a man, I, I would say I look at that situation and I see it as a projection onto women of a man's fear of his inability to bridle his own desire. And basically blaming that on the women, and that, basically, yeah. And so, I mean, I don't think we can say it's a one size fits all, one explanation fits all. But I think there are right. many facets to this problem I, throughout the history. I think it, I of think the it world. is, but obviously, here we are in a church today that has embraced something <laughs> that was um, was really <laughs> put into kind of the church tradition by. Neoplatonism, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's a real shame. Um, and I think we still need to continue to enlighten and move forward. And right now, I feel like we're going backwards. But yeah, I agree. And I will, I will say, you know, studying this passage has given me a new appreciation for John's gospel because it was, again, this was not the norm in right. John's community either. And the fact that he he gave such prominence to a woman. And a Samaritan, yeah, you know um, that I think took some courage on John's so part, and I, I, so I really appreciate um, the fact that that John made this dialogue a part of his gospel. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. I am too. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.